Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. Now in July, the British public was uh, shocked to discover that the man we know as Samoa Farah is in fact not Samoa Farah after all. Uh, his real name is Hussein Abdi Kahin. And according to the BBC, Samoa, or the man formerly known as Samoa, was brought to the UK illegally as a child, and he was forced to work as a domestic servant. And since that time, he had, in effect, been living a lie. So what made Samoa decide to finally reveal his identity, in fact, just before with the Commonwealth Games upon us earlier this year? Well, he told the BBC this. He said, for years, I just kept blocking it out. But you can only block it out for, for so long. I want to feel normal. The truth is, I am not who people think I am. That's Samo, or is it Sa'usen now? Right? I don't know what you make of the story, right? Uh, but I think it teaches us an important truth, doesn't it? It is important to not only know who you are, but to live consistently with who you are. Samo Farah knew who he was. He knew that. But he was not living out his true identity. He was living a lie. And he had no peace as a result. And that's because living contrary to our identity is terrible. We must know who we are and must live out of that identity. Now Paul makes this point throughout Colossians, but he especially makes it in Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then he goes on bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Just looking at that verse 12, we said this morning that Paul is reminding the Colossians that three things. They are chosen they are holy and they are beloved by God. And he's reminding them this truth because he wants them to know that living for Christ is not really about obeying rules as such. It is actually li about living out our true identity. We learned last week God has given us a new humanity in Christ. And everything that the Lord commands us is consistent with that new humanity. So living for him is really... Being who we are in Christ. We must kill sin in our lives because it is not who we are. We must grow to be like Christ with all the virtues we just read in verse 12 and 13 because it is who we are. So growing in Christ, as I said this morning, is about remembering first and foremost who you are to God. And this morning we said the first thing we must remember is that we are chosen by God. And we had a message about that, isn't it? Remember you are chosen, the doctrine of election. Well, this evening I want us to look at two more truths, Paul says in verse 12, that we must remember about who we are to God. If we are truly born again, if we truly have a relationship with the Lord, these two truths are important for us to remember. The first truth I want us to look at this evening, which Paul says there, is that remember you are holy to God. 
Remember, God has declared you holy in Christ. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy possess. Remember, you are holy to God. Over 20 years ago, the Sitaram River in Indonesia was thriving with fish. But today, if you go there, fishermen do not catch fish. Instead, what they catch is garbage. They fish for garbage. Their job literally has changed. They're in the garbage business now, not the fish business. Why is that? Well, it's because 20,000 tons of waste and the 340,000 tons of waste water, right, from 2,000 textile factories are disposed directly into what was once clear waterways of the Citrum River. It is now the most polluted river in the whole world. Now, I find the Citrum River to be a fitting image of humanity in our fallen state. We were once pure before God. Then sin entered the world. And the Bible now says that all of us by nature are defiled before God. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says this. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fed like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The prophet Isaiah is saying sin has contaminated us. We are by nature unclean before our holy God. The almighty God looks at us. With such disgust, in the same way that we look at the situation, in fact, even worse, because God is infinitely holy. In our default condition, we are repulsive to the holy God. And yet in this passage, we find something puzzling, don't we? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says something amazing about true followers of Christ. He says, you are holy if you trust in Christ. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Amazing, isn't it? Those who are in Christ have been declared holy before God. What does, it, what does this word holy mean? Well, the original word is agios. And it essentially means two things. It means to be set apart for God. It's actually a similar word to the words we made sent four times in chapter one. To be set apart for God. And it also means to be set apart away from sin. So those two things are important. We are set apart away from sin and set apart for God. We have sin removed for, from us and we have life with God. So when Paul says he calls them here, the Colossians, they are God's chosen ones, holy. He's saying to the Colossians, you are now set apart, consecrated, and dedicated before God as pure and blameless. In fact, he uses that phrase, um, holy and blameless, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. He's, he's in effect saying, this is your true inner reality. You are holy before God. This is how God sees each and every one of you who is truly trusting Christ. He no longer sees you like the Citrum River defiled before him. No, he looks at you and he says you are pure and blameless because you are standing in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But how is that possible? How is it possible that those who are once polluted now stand righteousness, now stand holy before God? 
Well, the answer is, if you've been with us in Colossians, the answer you know is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. And in fact, it's in verse 22 where he says we are blameless uh, before Christ. Let me just read that passage for you. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. You can just flick, flick back. It's, uh, it's there. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, this is how they were, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What is Paul saying to the Colossians there? Paul is saying to them, once you were knee deep in sin, you lived like rebels before God, like every human being. You were at war against God. You were strangers from God. You had no life with God. And like all human beings, you are born with a depraved mind, a mind that is hostile against God. You hated God. And you did many evil things. And because of that, the holiness and justice of God demanded that you should be punished for your treason and rebellion against God. And yet God did not cheer you on to hell. He always had a plan to restore you to himself as he's chosen. And so by his grace in Christ, God has reached out to you, says Paul. God has come in Christ as your peace. Says Paul, Christ is God wearing the rags of human flesh to reconcile us to himself in his body of death. God reconciled you to God, you might even say, Christ reconciled you to God by dying on that cross for you. Christ died to pay the damage for the breach of peace that had occurred between you and God. The penalty of your rebellion against God was death. This is what you hold God. But you were spiritual criminals. You couldn't afford the penalty. You didn't even want to pay the penalty. But God in Christ graciously he put, on, he put his head as it were Christ did. He put his head on the chopping block for you. He amazingly took the guillotine of the cross to remove your hostility to God. But Paul goes further in that passage, doesn't he? It's not just peacemaking that Christ has come to accomplish. It is fellowship, he says. God has not just taken away your enmity. You are now one with God in Christ. You, have, you live with God now. God has reconciled you. Christ has reconciled you by his death to present you holy and blameless before him. That's what Paul says there. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul is saying the blood of Jesus shed on the cross now makes you holy before God. Right now, if you are trusting in Christ, you are holy before God. You have been declared right, justified. There is now no barrier between you and God. You are blameless, past, present, and future before God. All the guilt of your sins have been nailed to Christ, to nailed to the cross of Christ. The Lord God has punished Christ already in your place. 
He has, Christ has carried your sin. And more than that, being holy means the perfect life of Christ is now your life. God now looks upon you with the holy and perfect reputation of Christ. Holiness before God doesn't just cancel sin, it credits something. The righteousness of Christ, his record. Okay? So it's not as we, the, the, the credit we hold God has been removed. So we are now in debit. That's our holiness. Not back to zero, in debit. Positive. That's holiness. Now in Colossians 3 verse 12, Paul is saying to the Colossians, keep remembering this. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy. Keep remembering this truth that you are already holy through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Paul saying that? Well, we have to carry on reading, isn't it? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying the key for us to grow in bearing fruits listed here is to keep remembering, first of all, that we are God's chosen people, which we looked at this morning, and also that we are already holy before God. And as we shall see in a moment, we are also beloved. But just focusing on that holiness. Paul is saying, remember you are already holy before God. How does remembering that we are holy in Christ help us to grow in putting off sin and putting on the fruits of the Spirit, if you so to speak, listed here? Well, again, as I said this morning, there are many ways it does this. But let me just give you two quick ways here. Similar to what we said about God's God making us chosen before him. This truth, remembering that we are holy before God, transforms our relationship with others. And that's really what I draw out immediately here. This truth changes how we see other followers of Christ. Just as the truth of our election changes how we see other believers, this truth of our holiness changes how we see other believers. The follower of Christ who is always awkward and has nothing good to say about your ministry or anything else that you do in life, if he is truly converted, he's not a failure before God at all. He's a sinner, but not a failure. Because God has made that person, if they're truly converted, holy before him. The brother who has wronged you has already been cleansed of his sins. No matter what horrible things he has done to you, if he has truly repented before God and is truly born again, right? He is holy to God. Now, if this is true, if God does declare his children holy, and he does, then who are you to be impatient 
and condemning of such a brother or sister. Who are you to condemn the sister whom Christ has made clean already? I'm not saying condone the sin, no. I'm saying, who are you to condemn them as a person? You see, this truth is humbling. It is saying to me, don't you dare think you are holy alone before God. You are holy with other true followers of Christ. And the question for you this evening is, do you believe this truth? That Christ makes his children holy. Do you believe the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 when he calls the church a holy nation? Well, if you do, show it by refusing to discriminate how you treat other true believers. Every believer gathered here has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Has been set apart from the world and for Christ. So how can you then, with a serious face, not love other followers of Christ? Let us truly believe this truth, isn't it? Of God declaring us holy. Because this is how we grow to love one another. That's the first implication. This, you see, just this truth transforms our relationships. It will grow your relationships with other people. The second thing this truth does is that it gives us hope, doesn't it? It gives us hope. It gives us hope that we can be holy in practice because it is who we are. In fact, it also makes sense of the commands of God in the Bible. God commands his children to turn from sin and to be holy. Not because they are not holy, fundamentally, but because it is who they are. It is because they are holy. That's their true nature. They have a capacity to obey what God commands because God has already declared them holy and he has given them a new humanity, a new nature. There's no excuse for us to wallow in sin or to be lazy about our holiness. God has set us apart for himself and cleansed us of sin. This is who we are. Don't cuddle your sins. It's not who you are. This truth also gives us hope, doesn't it? To pray to God for help in growing us to be holy in practice. We can pray and we know God is going to answer us. Why? Because we have already immediate access to the throne of the grace. We read Psalm 15. Who can ascend up the holy hill? That person has to be holy to ascend up the holy hill. But Christ has ticked those boxes for us in Psalm 15. We now have immediate access to the throne of grace. So if we pray to God to help us to grow in holiness, we will grow in holiness. God will hear us. We now live with him. We don't need another mediator. We are holy in Christ, our mediator. Christ is now yours if you're trusting in him. You are his, not because of anything you have done, but all because of what Christ has done for you already. So remember, you are holy to God. That's how you grow. And that's how this church will grow in loving one another. 
and in being like the picture in Colossians 3, verse 12 to 14. The second thing you need to remember from this passage is that you must remember you are beloved of God. Remember you are beloved of God. One of the constant themes of the Bible is that God loves his people, isn't it? That's a big thing. God loves his people. So it is not a surprise as we come to Colossians 3 verse 12 that Paul says one of the things we need to remember as new children of God is that we are God's beloved people. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved. Holy and beloved. The word for beloved can also be read as loved, actually. It is in the perfect tense. Which means that this is our settled state or reality. It is a done deal. You are loved in Christ. But what exactly is the love of God for us? What exactly is the love of God? We are so used to saying God is love and God loves us. But what do we mean by that? Where the love of God for us is God giving himself to us to care and provide for us. It is God setting his heart on us to nourish, cherish, and delight in us. That's love. Did you hear that? Nourish, cherish, and delight in you. We'll come back to that. This love of God for us, of course, includes both affection and action. Both feelings and deeds. The Bible usually tends to emphasize the action of God's love to us. But many words in the Bible that describe God's love have strong emotions attached. Words like compassion, pity. Mercy and tenderness, just to give you a few. For God, you see, love has both emotions and actions. But when I say, let's be careful, when I say the love of God as emotion, I am not talking about emotions in the human sense. God has no passions within himself. So when I say God as emotion, I mean divine emotion. Divine emotion which is changeless and beyond our understanding. Now, I think Paul has put the love of God, as he's calling us God's beloved here, he's put it last because I think it explains why God has chosen us. The line of thinking I think here is that God chose us before the foundation of the world. What is the purpose? So that we could be holy, right? Why? Because we are his beloved. Oh, we are chosen in the beloved, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. So we could enjoy his love for all eternity. Fundamentally, love is actually what underpins also the electing choice. We sometimes forget that we are followers of Jesus, not because we first loved God, but because God loved us first. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. And verse 19, we love because he first loved us. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. For we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. Do you see the line of thinking? The love of God and the pins is election of us. And he's making us holy. Now, we need to be clear that when we say we are the beloved of God, those of us who are true followers of Jesus Christ here, it does not mean those people who are not believers are not loved by God. They are also loved by God. But God loves, you see, human beings in different ways. In the Bible, the love of God for humanity is split among two groups. First, there is a love that God has only for those he has chosen. This is the love Paul is talking about here. It is the love of God only for us, his beloved in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This love of God for you is so wonderful. It should get you excited even now. First, God loved you before you even existed. God loved you and willingly decided to be good to you in eternity past. He had a prior love of you before you were. It was this prior love of you that, God, that made God eternally decree or appoint you to be in Christ. It is why he chose you. And God has not just loved you in eternity past. God is loving you in your created state. And he loved you in fact before you became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has shown this love to you by first creating you and then doing good to you, isn't it? Though you were covered in the field of your sin, even then the almighty God still loved you. In your sin and rebellion. He has loved you from birth. And he showed this amazing love to you by calling you to himself. He called you by that inward call of the Holy Spirit as he opened your heart to get the call of God to respond to the gospel message. So you had that inward call of the Spirit. And of course he prepared preachers, other people in your life to bring the gospel to you. That's love. That's love. The love of God sent God the Spirit to open your heart to hear the gospel. And the love of God made you repent and trust in Him, in Christ alone. And there is more, isn't there? It is the love of God that is keeping you in Him. Every day God is delighted in you as His saved child. He enjoys being with you. You are his beloved, not only in the sense that you receive, listen to me, you are his beloved, not only in the sense that you receive his love, you are his beloved in the sense that God takes delight in you as his child. 
And that probably surprises you, doesn't it? If you're listening and you haven't fallen asleep yet, that should surprise you. How can God delight in me? Surely that's not right. You gotta let that sink in. God delighting in me. God doesn't need anything from me. I can make God happy or sad. And that is true. It is true. God never changes. But the Bible also says that God does delight in us. In fact, in Zephaniah, we have a picture of God dancing over his children. God does delight in us. And he delights in us when you see his glory reflected in us. When we are like the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though it is true that you bring nothing to God, because his love is one-way love, it is also true God delights in you and loves you the more you love him. The theologians sometimes call this the love of complacency. Turretin called it. And this is mentioned throughout the Bible, isn't it? Proverbs 8, verse 17. I love those who love me and those who seek find me. Psalm 37, verse 28. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. God gives more grace to the humble, we read in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. The point is this, God loves us more. Oh, oh. The more we become like his son. You know, all, we enjoy and see, experience more of his love, the more we become like his son. But God delights in us even more, the more we become like his son. So there's more love. Sin from God's vantage point of his delight in us, because that's part of God loving us. Let that sink in, beloved. Let that sink in. You are his beloved because God loves you in Christ. And you bring pleasure and delight to God. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the blood of Christ sanctifies you. Just pause on now, beloved. Worship Christ for this. You, a mere creature, bring delight to the Father in Christ. The self-existent and self-sufficient God. Worship and adore him for that mystery that is only possible because of the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first group God loves, isn't it? Us who are chosen. But also God loves those who are not his chosen ones in Christ, without a doubt. Some people doubt this, but it is true. God from eternity past has loved them as his creatures. God, in fact, created them out of his love to them as creatures. But without his electing love for them. Because they are not chosen. God also loves non-believers in this life in that he does good to them as human beings. He makes the, the rains fall on the wicked and the good. He makes the sun shine on the wicked and the good. 
is always good. The God, God is good to all, the psalmist tells us. So they are loved in that sense as creatures, except they don't enjoy the blessings in this life of being in Christ. Interestingly, God's love to unbelievers also includes them hearing the gospel of Jesus. Even though it never converts them, it's a blessing to them because the gospel of Christ has many non-serving benefits. Just being in this country is because the gospel has sounded out in this nation for at least the last 500 years. Has everybody been converted by that? No. But we are enjoying the benefits of it. The freedom of press and all the rest of the things you enjoy in this country come because of the gospel heritage of this nation. So even now, the wicked in this nation are enjoying God's love through these um, non-serving benefits. So God certainly loves non-believers. But they are not his beloved as we are his beloved. They are not his chosen, holy, and beloved in Christ. If you are in Christ this evening, you are loved in a special way. You belong to Christ because God called you to be a Christian in a way that he has not called other people. And Paul here is saying to us, who are true followers of Christ, remember you are beloved of God. Don't be bored of hearing that. Remember it. Delight in it. Think about it often. Because here is the key to growing in Christ, he says. Put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, because you are the beloved, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. How does remembering we are God's beloved help us to grow in putting on the fruits of the Spirit? In verse 12 to 14. Again, two crucial ways. And we'll come to an end. Two crucial ways. First, remembering this truth grows our confidence, doesn't it? It grows our confidence that we can love each other because we know what love is. And together we can share in this love. Before we became followers of Christ, we were cut off from life and the love of God. We were without God and without hope in the world. We were without his love. We lived in hating and hating one another. In hatred. But by the grace of our God in Christ, God has given us new life in Christ. And we are now in loving union with God our Father and his children in Christ. The union is vertical and horizontal, you see. Our new life is now connected to the eternal love of the Holy Trinity. We shower in the endless love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And because we each are connected to that, where well, every true believer now, by definition, lives in the union of love with one another. Because we share, you see, kononia, fellowship of love with God, the triune God. 
So believers inherently love one another. We love each other positionally because believers are designed in Christ to be a perfect body together. We are parts that are designed to fit together. So we love each other positionally and we love each other practically, you see, because the same love of Christ that lives in us also lives in other true followers of Christ by God the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of love. And our king is the king of love. And the language spoken in this kingdom is a language of love. Love is who we are. And, that, and that's why if we have no love, beloved, then we are heading to hell. Without a doubt. Let us not debate that. It is fact. You see, because we live in the kingdom of love, no matter how strained our relationships are, if we are true followers of Christ, there is always hope for renewed love among two believers. So this truth gives us hope, doesn't it? And pastorally, this is the key. This is the key. The key to a peaceful church is, is having a regenerate church. The key to a loving membership is having a regenerate membership. That's the key. That's the key. There's no point of bringing two people who are unregenerate and trying to make them love each other. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. But because we do, we are regenerate. There is hope. Second, second thing this truth gives us is direction, doesn't it? Direction. How do we grow in practice in loving others? Well, simply by continuing to remember that we are loved by God in Christ already. And that's the point Paul is getting at. Put on them as God's chosen one, holy and beloved. Paul is saying, remember this. Continue to remember that you are loved by God in Christ already. You see, we sin against God and others because we want to live for the flesh, don't we? Sin is rooted in excess love. We love ourselves too much. Instead of God. That's why we wallow in sin. But what is the antidote to that? The antidote is that Paul is saying, remember you are beloved of God. Remember you are loved. So you don't need to keep looking for love elsewhere. Victory over sin in our lives comes only through remembering that we have all the love that we need in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are the beloved of God. And it is not just victory over sin. This truth that we are the beloved of God waters the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Because you see, we can only do verse 12 to 14 if we are truly secure in the love of God. Do you see what we are being asked to do there? Put on then as God's chosen one, holy beloved, hearts, com compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Forgiving one another, he says there, verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all, this put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There are a lot of things we are being asked there. What's the solution? Well, the solution is remembering we are already loved and the security that comes from being loved. Because, you see, this fruits of the Spirit, beloved, requires us to die to self. That's the issue. Did you notice about them? We're going to go through them in detail. I think we'll do that next year. Uh, but they require us to die to self. They're very difficult. 
I, they're impossible. I've I, I spent time meditating about them this year. They are hard. Having humility requires you to think yourself less. To think more of others. To lift others up while you are being treated like a doormat. That's hard. That is death to serve. And you might want to miss that sermon perhaps, but it's being preached on humility. We'll have one. Meekness is even worse. There's a difference between meekness and humility. Meekness requires you to be willing to suffer injury. That's what meekness is about. Rather than dish it out. That's hard. That's hard. Patience, even worse. It requires you to be long-suffering. That means the suffering you're suffering and the meekness continues longer. That's patience. Bearing up in that state. Hard. Forgiveness is even harder. <laughs> it is. I think it just ups the ante, right? Because forgiving others means you're paying the price. You're paying the sacrifice for them, for the offense they've done to you. You are the one who's there, allowing the things to go away. You are the, the priest in this situation, humanly speaking. It is grace and mercy to be forgiving. The point is that all of these virtues, they are impossible for any of us to do. They come by the work of the Holy Spirit, as he enables us to realize that we are secure in being God's chosen, God's holy, God's beloved. Knowing that we are loved by God gives us the encouragement we need to live a sacrificial life that these virtues demand, as you'll see next year. We can do this when we know that no matter how much we lose, we are still winners. No matter how much we lose, we are still winners because we are God's holy, we are God's chosen. You know, we are not like uh, La La Land, which I talked about this morning. We are always moonlight, right? We are always moonlight in Christ. We are swimming in the love of God. We are his beloved. And the more we remember and believe this truth, the more we grow in being like Christ. So to summarize then, the point in this passage is teaching us that we are, that the growing in Christ is about remembering that we are God's chosen, holy, and beloved of God. And we learned this morning that the key to remembering this precious truth is to keep reading and rereading the word of God. Because Paul wanted them to remember their identity. So what did he do? Well, he's saying, look, I know Pastor Epaphras has been preaching to you about these things. I know Archippus is very good on these issues, right? I know Philemon is doing his best to encourage you in these things. But I've seen it fit to put the word of God on ink. And I'm writing you so that you can have this copy, so that you can read it. And in chapter 4 says, once you read it, share it with the church at Laodicea. The key is to keep rereading the word of God. Keep preaching this word of God to yourself. And I said this morning that you should let this truth warm your heart. And I said this morning, and I'll repeat, pray that this truth gives you a true listening heart. Pray that God will make you truly love his truth with your inner being, not just your head. I said there is no good, I said this morning. You're just accumulating larger and larger library of books 
larger and larger YouTube videos of sermon after sermon. Because the danger is that those things on judgment day will stand against you if you have not had a changed heart. That will be your evidence. So resolve, beloved, this evening to have a true listening heart. Don't seek more knowledge. As I said, you know, my wife is here and, you know, she can tell me later that I buy one book every week. So I'm, I'm, I'm not against that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's great. But God isn't after more knowledge. Seek after Christ. He's after changed heart. So seek, not more knowledge, seek Christ. Seek to know him. Seek to know the power of his resurrection, as I said this morning. Seek to love him and allow Christ to change you. Amen.